So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be starting at verse 6 and going to the end of the chapter. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. What you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. For the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So I'm not a pilot. I've never flown an airplane. Uh, but I know that airplanes have a lot of complex equipment, a lot of complex readings that pilots have to make when they're flying an airplane. And it wasn't always the case when uh, flying, uh, when aviation was in its infancy, uh, airplanes didn't have those kind of things. It was very simple in the way that an airplane flew. But they, pilots would get into trouble when they got into low visibility weather, when they got into dense fog or clouds. And what would happen sometimes is uh, the pilot would be going into dense fog and they would make a turn. And uh, often when you'd make a, turn, make a turn in an airplane, you'd do what was called a banked turn. And when you do a banked turn, what happened is, is one wing goes down and the other wing goes up. And so you turn that way, uh, a banked turn. The thing is, when you're doing a bank turn, for the first 20 or so seconds, you feel like you're tilted. But apparently after about 20 seconds, somehow something in your equilibrium changes and it feels like you're level again. So these pilots would go into the fog and they would turn sideways and they would stay there for over 20 seconds and then it would feel like they were straight. Then when they would try to turn back straight, it would feel like they were crooked again. So then they turn back to be actually crooked. And what would happen, they would enter into these dangerous graveyard spirals. So they would be turned, and then they would just keep going around and around and around in circles. And if they didn't catch themselves, eventually they were going to crash. And the thing that was amazing was all the while, they don't realize that they're crooked. They don't realize that they're not flying straight because their equilibrium is fooled by the way that the airplane flies. One author and pilot describes an incident this way. It says, in December of 1925, a young Army pilot named Carl Crane got caught in the clouds at 8,000 feet directly over Detroit while trying to fly a congressman's son to Washington, D.C. in a biplane. 
Crane later said, in a short time, I was losing altitude, completely out of control. I could not fly the airplane at all. It had got into a spiral dive. Halfway down, I looked around at my boy in the back, and he was enjoying the flight to no end. He was shaking his hands and grinning, and I was slowly dying because I knew we were going to crash. Crane did not know which wing was up, which was down, let alone by how much. If he tried to level the wings, he was just as likely to roll upside down as right side up. If he tried to raise the nose, the effect would be exactly the opposite. The turn would quicken, steepening the descent. In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is kind of bringing the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians to the close. And as we've looked at these first four chapters, we've looked a lot, Paul's talked a lot about pride and about how uh, different people in the church were kind of uh, going to different leaders and kind of picking out their favorite leaders, and they were exhibiting pride in, in a number of different ways in the church. And here in this chapter, he's going to talk and kind of conclude these first four chapters and talk about pride once again. And I think pride is kind of like that banked term. It's like we turn into it and we, it, it, it gets so natural, it gets so easy that we don't realize sometimes that it's leading us to destruction. And if we're not careful, it can cause us to crash. C.G. Hong, psychiatrist, writes this, Through pride we are ever deceiving ourselves, but deep down below the surface of the average conscience, a still small voice says to us, something is out of tune. Pride's always deceiving us. Pride is always telling us that we're flying straight even when we're headed for the destruction. And in this passage, Paul is going to talk about two kind of on-roads to pride, two ways that we become prideful and two ways that we can kind of recognize pride. And then he's going to talk about three ways that we can deal with pride. Now, the reason that Paul is so insistent upon uh, hammering over and over again about pride is because he knows that pride can be so deadly. He knows that there's no way that we can live lives that are pleasing to God if we're filled with pride. Andrew Murray once said this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. G.K. Chesterton once said this, if I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. And so it's very important that we realize the effects that pride has on all of our lives, even when it's subtle. So there's two ways, uh, two kind of on-roads to pride, two ways that pride can manifest itself and leads to pride. And Paul tells us the first is presumption, that we think that we're better than we are, and often we think that we're better than other people. Now, we've talked about this in several messages in the past. I won't belabor the point, but this is an on-road to pride. If we think that we're better than other people, if we think we have it more together than other people, then by nature we're going to be filled with pride. Uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks writes this. He says, we're an overconfident species. He calls it a magnification of the self. And he believes that this god of self-esteem is rampant in the United States. To back up his claims, Brooks cites an array of statistics, studies, and observations. Number one, when pollsters ask people around the world to rate themselves on different traits, Americans usually supply the most positive self-ratings. Two, although American students do not perform well on global math tests, they are among the world leaders in having self-confidence about their math abilities. Three, compared to college students from 30 years ago, today's college students are much more likely to agree with statements such as, I am easy to like. 
for 94% of college professors believe they're above average uh, in, teach, in teaching skills. Five, 70% of high school students surveyed claim that they have above average leadership skills and only 2% are below average. He observes that a few decades ago, it would have been unthinkable for a baseball player to celebrate himself in the batter's box after hitting a home run, and today it's routine. Seventh, uh, pop singers would, wouldn't have composed songs about their own greatness. Now these songs, he says, dominate the charts. Number eight, the number of high school seniors who believed that they were, quote, a very important per person in the 1950s was 12%. In the 1990s, it was 80%, and per perhaps even higher today. Number nine, according to Brooks, American men are especially susceptible to the perils of overconfidence. Men unintentionally drown twice as often as women because men have great faith in their swimming ability, especially after drinking. He concludes this, there's abundant evidence to suggest that we have shifted a bit from a culture that emphasized self-effacement. I'm not better than anybody else, but nobody is better than me, to a culture that emphasizes self-expansion. We live in a culture that celebrates pride, and sometimes pride is even hard to recognize. We can even think that we're, we're more virtuous than other people, even more humble than other people. And yet the truth is we're no better than anyone else. That what, that's what Paul says in this passage. He says in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? In other words, what makes you think you're so special? What makes you think that you're better than everybody else? And he's like, I'm a third-party observer, and I can observe your behavior and the way that you conduct yourself, and you're no better than anybody else. And the truth is nobody, none of us are better than anybody else. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal. We're all fallen and in need of grace. And presumption causes us to have pride because we feel like we better, we're better than we are, and we feel like we're better than other, other people. So that's the first on-road to pride, it's presumption. The second on-road to pride is misappropriation. If you would ask people who are successful, people who are successful in business or in sports or, or whatever the case may be, what caused you to get where you're at? Probably the overwhelming majority, and I think statistics, studies, uh, surveys have backed this up, would say, it's because I worked hard. I worked hard to get where I'm at. And if they didn't say they worked hard, well, maybe they would cite some kind of principles that they live by that caused them to be successful. Uh, I typed in a, uh, a search in uh, how to be successful, and a number of articles came up, and they were all based around this, uh, this theme of principles that you can integrate into your life to be more successful. Uh, for example, one was 12 great ways to be successful without a college degree. 11 habits that will help you to become more successful. Uh, 10 tips to achieve anything that you want in your life. And really at the core of this thinking is that if you work hard, if you apply yourself, then you'll be successful. Now, there's an element of truth to that. I mean, if we're not faithful with the things that we're given, if we're not good stewards, then we're not going to uh, kind of achieve what we want to achieve, what God has uh, called us to achieve. We're not going to fulfill our potential. So there's an element of truth to that, but there's a lot of elements of success that are completely outside of our control. You know, one person can work very hard and have a job that's just above minimum wage their whole life. Another person can work equally hard and become a millionaire. Uh, some people have more resources than other people. When I was growing up, I played hockey, and uh, when I was just a little kid, I played 
uh, with uh, Patrick Kane, in, uh, who plays in the, for the Chicago Blackhawks. And, you know, he was far and away better than everybody else. And, of course, I'm sure he put a lot of hard work and effort into that. But while uh, all the rest of the kids were maybe on the ice one, two times a week in kind of a big group setting, he had a skating coach that worked with him several times a week to develop his skill. And so not everyone has the resources that other people have. Not everybody has the advantages that other people have. Not everybody has the, the natural-born skills, natural-born abilities other people have. I had a friend when I was uh, just a little kid who's really, really smart. And uh, my mom tells me about how we would have sleepovers and you know, have a group of, a whole bunch of group of kids over. And everybody would be sleeping, and this one kid would be up reading his book. And uh, he just had this desire to learn, went on to become a doctor. Not everyone has that. And so when we think about success, not all of success, or probably most of success is due to factors outside of ourselves. Of course, we want to achieve everything we can achieve, put the hard work in. But there's so many factors that are outside of our control. But often what we do is when we experience blessings, we misappropriate them as wages. When God gives us something in life, we think that we've earned it. Sometimes we even put a spiritual guise on that. It's like, I was a good person, so I know it's a gift, but God gave it to me because I'm a good person. And we have that pride that infects our heart where we misappropriate the gifts of God rather than recognizing them as things that were straight-up gifts from him. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So we're driven by pride when we take credit for the good things that happen in, in our lives. And when we do that, we're misguided because everything we have is a gift from God. So those are the two kind of on-ramps to pride, things that can lead to pride. If we uh, are presumptuous, if we think we're better than other people, then of course we're going to be filled with pride. If we're misappropriating the gifts of God, if we think that the blessings that come in this life are because we're good or because we've achieved something great, then of course we're going to be filled with pride over other people. But then Paul tells us three ways that we can deal with pride, three things that dissolve pride. And the first thing that he tells us dissolves pride is gratitude. Gratitude dissolves pride. Again, Paul questions the Corinthians, if you, uh, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's impossible to be genuinely grateful and to be prideful at the same time because when we gra we're grateful, we recognize that the good things in our life are gifts from God. They're not from our own efforts. The authors of the book Law and Gospel give a helpful illustration. They say, imagine that you're uh, on a cruise ship and you fall overboard into the water and you can't swim. And you are flailing about, struggling with all your might, but you are sinking and you are sinking fast. Just at the moment when you're about to give up, someone throws you a life raft. And the last thing you remember is you grab on with all of your might to that life raft and then you black out. The next thing you know, you wake up on the boat. Everybody's gathered around you and everybody's cheering as you cough up and, and wake up because you're alive. Now in that context, would you get up and say, wow, can you, did you see how I grabbed onto that life raft? I mean, I nailed it. I held onto that life raft like nobody's ever held onto a life raft before. 
Of course, he wouldn't say that. You'd be thanking the person that threw that life raft to you because you know they saved your life. You know that you were about to drown and they intervened. When we're grateful, when we realize that everything we have is a gift from God, there's no room for pride. Pride is dissolved. When we're filled with gratitude, there's no credit left. There's no self involved. And sometimes that's why it's hard for us to receive gifts. Sometimes it's easier to give gifts because if we give gifts, we can think of ourselves as a good giving person. But when we receive gifts, sometimes it's harder because we have nothing to add. There's nothing that we did. It doesn't help our self-esteem. Gratitude dissolves pride. And as believers, we know that all the good things in our life are gifts from God. We, we also know that our salvation is a gift from God. We know that all of us were drowning in our sin, headed for eternity separated from God, and God threw that life raft in Jesus, and we take hold of that life raft, and we hold on to it. And everything we have is a gift from God. And so there's no room for pride in our hearts. There's no boasting except for in Christ and who he is. Blaise Pascal said this, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Gratitude has the power to transform us. Uh, there's been so many studies that have been done upon the po about the power of gratitude, about how gratitude can ease depression, can ease anxiety. Uh, one particular study that was done was remarkable, where uh, researchers asked people to write down three things that they were thankful for for just five minutes per day for a week. And they found that remarkably this changed people's outlook profoundly and it even had an effect like months down the road. I mean, they only did it for one week, and it had effects on their well-being months down the road. Gratitude can influence our lives. It can even have physical effects on us. And I think part of the reason why it can have those effects is because we weren't meant to be the center of the universe. There's a lot of weight on us if we're the center of the universe, if we're filled with pride. And we were meant to live in dependence upon our Heavenly Father. And when we let go of that pride, there's a freedom and a joy that's like nothing else. So gratitude is the first way that we can deal with pride. The second way that we can deal with pride is through love. Love helps us deal with pride. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians to be imitators of him, to be like him. And further, he tells them that he's not speaking to them to shame them. He's like, I'm not, I don't want to shame you. That's not my intentions. I want to admonish you. Now, if Paul were acting in pride, he would want to shame them, right? If he were acting in pride, he would want to say, okay, you guys stink. I am morally and spiritually superior to you. I am better than you guys. And so he probably would want to shame them if he were acting in pride. But he says, I don't want to do that. I want to admonish you. Scholar Gordon Fee describes warning or admonishing this way. He said it has the primary connotation of trying to have a corrective influence on someone. An admonition that's designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. Question, if you're a parent, do you sit up at night and worry that your child is better than you? If you're a parent, do you hope that your child doesn't accomplish very much in life so that 
you're seen as better. Of course not. Of course you don't think those things. Most parents want their children to go well beyond they ever achieve, anything they ever achieve. I mean, it's not even something that crosses people's mind. There's a genuine love and concern, and Paul has that mindset. He says, you're like my kids. Spiritually speaking, they were. He had preached the gospel to them, and spiritually speaking, they were like his kids. And he's like, I'm not trying to shame you. I don't want you to feel bad. I'm just trying to change you. I'm trying to correct you. I'm trying to encourage you so that you get on the right path in following after God. And when we're filled with love, pride also disappears. Pride dissolves. Because when we're filled with hearts of love, we're no longer thinking about self. We're thinking about others. That's why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, just a few chapters later, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We think about love. We think, what is the opposite of love? We think hate, right? But hate isn't the opposite of love. Uh, author John Boykin says that the difference between, uh, or he says that, uh, commenting on this verse, he says, Paul suggests something striking in his chapter on love, that the opposite of love is not hate, but pride. The opposite of love is not hate, it's pride. Just like gratitude and love cannot exist together, love, or gratitude and pride cannot exist together, love and pride cannot coexist together. One cannot happen without the other. Either you're focused on the other. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Consider another person as an extension of yourself. Consider their needs as equal or greater than your needs. Consider their abilities, their, uh, view them higher than you view yourself. And that's the heart of love. And if you have that heart of love, then there's no room for pride. Pride Focus on the, is on the self. When we're filled with pride, we think highly of ourselves. We look only for ourselves and not for the needs of others. But love dissolves that pride. Love helps us focus on the other and fulfill the love of the, the calling of God. So that's the second thing that Paul gives us to deal with pride. The third thing that Paul uh, demonstrates and provides for the Corinthians is rebuke. Paul says some things in this passage that are pretty harsh. He speaks sarcastically and pointedly to the Corinthians, and he points out their pride. And uh, the nuances of his argument are a little bit hard to follow, but essentially what he's saying, I believe here, is you think that you have it all together. He says you've already become rich. You already rule. Your bellies are full. You think that you have it all together. And we, on the other hand, we are broken. We're struggling. We work with our hands Oftentimes we go hungry, we're mistreated. He says literally we're, we're treated as the scum of the earth. And you think that you have it all together, but we're the ones who are actually following after the way of Jesus. We're the, actually the ones who are following after Christ with all of our hearts. I think essentially what he's saying is, Paul, or what he's saying is wake up. You think that you have it all together, but you're lost. It's harsh words, but sometimes we need harsh words in our life. Sometimes we need that, that, those harsh words to kind of jolt us from our slumber that we're in. 
I remember uh, when I was playing hockey in high school, I had this coach that a lot of people didn't like him because he was very outspoken and he was kind of, uh, best way I could describe him, was kind of like a loose cannon. He would just say whatever came to his mind. But I knew what coaches I could get away with things with. I mean, there were other coaches that were just kind of quiet, you know, just kind of led the drills. And I knew I could just kind of slack it when he wasn't looking. You know, I could just go slow. But I knew I couldn't get away with that with this coach. I knew that if I did something wrong, he wasn't afraid to call me out at it in front of everybody. And so when he was in the room, when he was watching us, I skated with all of my heart. Because I knew he was going to call me out if I wasn't working hard. I think we need that in our life. It's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. But sometimes, you know, we're going in the wrong direction and we're so focused on ourselves and focused on our sin that we need something, either God to come into our life with, through uh, some circumstances to, to kind of jolt us or someone else to speak the truth and love to us. And ideally, when that happens, we should respond with repentance and with gratitude for those words that were spoken to us. But also as, a belie as believers, I think to deal with pride, sometimes it requires us speaking the truth and love to other people. I'll admit this is something that's really hard for me because I don't like conflict. I don't like to challenge people on things. It's hard for me, probably hard for most of us. When somebody's doing something that's wrong, we, there's thoughts that come through our mind like, you know, maybe it's not my place to say something. You know, I have things that I'm working on, and, you know, I'm not perfect. Maybe I shouldn't say something. Or if I do say something, then maybe they're going to, you know, come back and berate me. Or maybe they're not going to be my friend anymore. Maybe they're going to be angry. But when we think those thoughts, really, that's our pride coming to the surface. What are they going to think about me if I say these things? What are they going to think about me? It's not about... What's best for them, it's about what's best for me. See, in pride, we can speak out against something. We can speak out hypocritically, speak in condescension to someone. But also in pride, we can fail to speak the truth in love. And of course, we need to be careful. We need to be careful we're not being hypocritical, that we're not coming with an arrogant spirit, that we're, our, our intention is not to put somebody down, that our hearts are really... Uh, flowing with love, that it, that's our intention to, to show Christ's love to, so that person would come back to the right path. But sometimes we need to speak the truth in love. Sometimes we need to say harsh things in order to do what God has called us to do. So to deal with pride, we need to give and receive uh, rebuke or correction. So the three tools we have to deal with pride, gratitude, love, and rebuke. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was not a believer, uh, but he uh, had these systems of virtue that he would work on. And he had 13 virtues that he would work on. Uh, some of them, uh, a few of them, silence. He said, to speak not but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Frugality. Uh, make, make, make no expense but to do good to others or yourself. That is waste nothing. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Uh, tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or accidents or common or unavoidable. 
And so he had set up a book with a page for each virtue, and each week he would work on a different virtue. And each week he would write down the defects he had, the areas where he struggled in that virtue. And every 13 weeks he would just kind of cycle through those virtues, and he would try to go 13 weeks without failing in one of those virtues. And he'd start to have a little bit of success with that, but then he found that something else reared its ugly head, and that was pride. He found himself struggling desperately with pride. He writes this about pride. There's perhaps not one of the natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle it, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive and will every now and then peep out and show itself. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be brought, uh, probably be proud of my humility. We need to constantly be on guard against pride and continually be putting pride to death. So this summer I had a little battle with uh, some ants, carpenter ants. And uh, I'd never really dealt with carpenter ants before, uh, but I noticed in my basement there was a bunch of carpenter ants and a bunch of them in the bathroom and then kind of a, a few of them here and there throughout the house. And so I, at first I saw them, and my wife was not very happy seeing all these ants. I'm like, what's the big deal? I'll just get some traps from the store, put the traps out. Won't be an issue. So I get all these traps, put them out, not worried about it, and they're not interested in these traps whatsoever. They don't eat these traps. They're not for carpenter ants. So then I just started kind of squishing them, thinking that they're not going to come back. And they're literally multiplying like the loaves and the fishes before my eyes. I would squish one, and then there would be another one that just comes out of the woodwork from somewhere. I have no idea where it's coming from. And then I'd go away for like, 15 minutes, and then I'd come back, and there'd be all these ants and have no idea where they're coming from. And so at first, I'm like, all right, it's not a big deal. Put a few ant traps out, maybe spray a little something on the outside of the house. I, I don't like chemicals. I don't like that kind of stuff. But they just keep kept multiplying, and I got to a point where I'm like, all right, this is war. Like, I, I don't care what I have to do. If I have to rip out the windows, I'm going to rip out the windows. I'm going to go to Home Depot. I'm going to get anything that has a picture of an ant on it. I'm going to spray it everywhere. I don't care if I get cancer. I'm going to kill these ants. Like, i got to deal with this. So I did that. And it was only when I did that, when I just completely declared war on them, that they disappeared. And I know someday they're going to come back again. Someday they're going to try to make their way, probably next spring when, you know, they're looking for homes, they're going to come back. And I think pride is kind of like that. It, sometimes pride, it seems like not a big deal. It seems like something that we have a control of. It's something that can take, take control of our hearts so easily, even without us knowing. Unless we're engaging in, a, in an all-out war against pride, we're not going to win against it. And even when we engage in all-out war against it, even when we think we've accomplished, uh, think we've conquered it, we need to be careful because it's going to try to rear its ugly head again. That's the nature of pride. It seeps into our hearts. It seeps into everything that we do. But Paul gives us these ways that we can do it, that we can deal with pride. If we're filled with gratitude, there's no room for pride. If we recognize everything we have as a gift from God, and we're just stewards of those gifts. That our only king, our only master is Christ. And we're 
focused on serving him, there's no, no room for pride. If we're focused on loving others, if we're considering their needs higher than our own, if we consider their welfare as being like our own welfare, seeking to love them with all our hearts, there's no room for pride. If we're accepting rebuke, repenting when necessary, and also speaking the truth in love, it helps us deal with pride. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a humble king, a king who came to the earth as a baby born in the major. We thank you that even though you are great and mighty and holy, you don't lord it over us. You choose to allow us to be your kids, to be a part of your family, to be a part of your mission, Lord. We know, Lord, that everything that we have is a gift from you. Our salvation, the gifts that you've given us to serve the people around us, the opportunities that we have in, your, in, in this life, everything we have is a gift from you. Lord, help us to never forget that, never to make it seem like it's our efforts that brought these things, but to always live lives of gratitude and love before you. In Christ's name I pray.